On this episode of Club and Resort Talks, we chat with golf course architect Dr. Michael Herdson, who has written a number of books and has fingerprints on some of the very well-known golf courses in the country, such as Aaron Hills, Scioto Country Club, and the Philadelphia Cricket Club, to name a few. He's also one of only a handful of people to achieve the non-playing Grand Slam as the recipient of the highest honor from each of the big three in our industry, the Golf Course Superintendents Association of America, the American Society of Golf Course Architects, and the Golf Course Builders Association of America. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hello on this episode of Club and Resort Talks. We're sitting down with Dr. Michael Herdson, golf course architect. Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Rob. It's my pleasure to be on the show. I um, I enjoy the magazine a great deal and the podcast, and so to be able to participate with you is uh, quite an honor. Well, thank you very much, sir. Hey, uh, speaking of thank you, I just received one of your books. Before we get into that, I noticed that you're a retired colonel. How do you go from the military to uh, golf course design? Well, it's interesting in the fact that when I started in school, ROTC was mandatory, and uh, it was a good, easy way for me to pay for my schooling. And so I went into the service, and then right after the Vietnam War, there was a reduction in in force, if you will. They called it a RIF. And so they gave us an opportunity to continue our military service, but to do it in in a reserve component. So I left active duty and uh, got into a reserve unit. I stayed uh, in the service for 23 years, reached the rank of colonel in Special Forces, and I enjoyed it a lot, and that's how it all happened. So I could have both a career and enjoy the military at the same time. Well, thank you for your service. Oh, you're most welcome. And again, I enjoyed it. At times uh, when I was doing a a lot of fun things, I was thinking, geez, I can't believe the government's paying me to do this. <laughs> hey, about that book, uh, you, re- you penned Golf and Law, Golf Course Safety, Security, and Risk Management. Can you give our listeners a little bit of an overview? Yes. I've been in the business. My dad was a golf pro, so I grew up on a golf course. And the gentleman who owned the golf course where my dad uh, ended up being a, a teaching pro was also a golf course architect and take me with him out to the field. And um, we did a a number of golf courses, and one of those caused a lawsuit. And uh, basically, a farmer had converted fields into a golf course, sold the adjoining property for house lots. There was an issue of golf balls going into those house lots. And uh, the farmers and uh, the person who bought the lot sued the golf course. And we thought, well, the golf course was there first. And So, therefore, uh, the court is going to say, well, sorry, you knew what you were buying into to the homeowner. And, in fact, the court said, you will close that golf hole until we come to a resolution. And so that got my interest in uh, golf and the law. And over that 40 years or so, I've been an expert witness in about 160 lawsuits involving golf, everything from non-payment of contractors to murder cases. Wow, that that spans the spectrum. <laughs> yeah, well, it does, and uh, you know, and I never stop learning. And by the way, the mag, your magazine, is a great source of information. As you can see, I've quoted lots and lots of articles that I've read in the magazine uh, to help illustrate the points I'm trying to make about how golf courses can do a better job in safety, security, and risk management. Well, hopefully, you don't cite how not to run a magazine. <laughs> 
Hey, hey, you've got your fingerprints on some notable courses like uh, Aaron Hills, Seattle Country Club, the Philadelphia Cricket Club, to name a few. Uh, you may have touched upon it a little bit, but why did you choose a career in golf course design? Well, as I mentioned to you, when I was quite young, the gentleman who owned the golf course where my dad uh, taught was um, would take me with him out to the field, and I would see farm fields and woods and, and areas like that all of a sudden not all of a sudden, but become golf courses. And I thought it was the most magical process. And um, I look forward to it every day to be able to go out. And uh, so I said, Mr. Kidwell, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And he said, Mike, I'll do my best to train you. And um, you follow in my footsteps, and we'll see if that can happen. So here we are 60-some years later, and uh, I'm uh, still doing it. And my son is following in my footsteps. And uh, so I'm teaching him as well. Well, that's, that's uh, got to be more rewarding than uh, some of the accolades. Well, you know, back way back, Rob, uh, back when, Rob, I, I thought I was a pretty decent player, and uh, especially in high school. When I went to college at Ohio State, started in 1961, and uh, in my freshman class was a guy named Tom Weiskopf. Uh His roommate was a guy named Ed Sneed. Uh, Jack Nicholas was just leaving school at that time. And all of a sudden I said, you know what? <clears throat> I'm not really a player. I've got to find another way to stay in this golf business and enjoy it. And golf architecture has been it. Yeah. A trio like that. Uh, that's, that's quite a wake up call, huh? <laughs> well, you think you're good until you play against those guys. And then you find out just what being good really means. Well, uh, speaking of Jack, you're in select company, one of only a handful of uh, people, including Arnie, Jack, Byron Nelson, Robert Trent Jones Sr., Reese Jones, and Pete Dye, Pete Dye, I think I named them all, to achieve the non-playing Grand Slam as the recipient of the highest honor in each of the big three of our industry, Golf Course Superintendents Association, the American Society of Golf Course Architects, and the Golf Course Builders Association of America. That's quite a impressive resume. You know, it's very humbling to be in the presence, uh, in the name presence of those guys. And uh, more importantly, to have your peers recognize you is, um, uh, while you're alive uh, is even better. And um, so I'm very, quite, I'm very, very proud of those and, and, again, quite humbled to be able to receive those awards. You know, I, I try to give back to the industry. This sounds like an ad, and it's not really – and I sincerely mean it. I try to give back to the industry uh, what I've gotten out of it, and I found that it's almost in a, a multiplier effect. So I try to teach. I try to work with students. Uh, I try to uh, write articles, uh, publish books, and things where things that I've learned I can I can share with others. And, um, uh, again, I, I appreciate the fact that the industry has recognized those and been very kind to me. Well, you've obviously earned it, and, uh, I mean, keep doing what you're doing. Thank you. Uh, hey, I uh, intend to. And, that, that, by the way, I didn't mean to interrupt, but that's the no. beautiful thing about being in this golf business. Generally, we can stay where we want to. We can stay in it as long as we want, you know, as long as we don't get too jaded and as long as we have good health. Uh, this is a wonderful industry that there's just not a lot of pressure to have to quit. And it's fantastic that you're able to, uh, to, to bring your son along, and now he's taking over. The herds and name is going to keep on going and going and going. So 
once you're out of the industry, once you decide to to hang up your 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 pen and paper, I don't know exactly what you guys are designing on a computer program now. I would imagine, but uh, you'll have you'll have a herdsing going on. Yep, and it's kind of fun too because um, I have utmost respect for my son Christopher, who's um, I say is a lot smarter than I am. So um, I take the things that I have learned, and then he reinterprets them and. And I go, wow, that's even better than I thought it could be. So, yep, it's a lot of fun to work with your son. That's beautiful. Hey, do you have a specific design philosophy that you follow? Well, you know, I I got in this business really because of the love of the game. And um, I didn't, you know, I wasn't a country club member. I um, uh, didn't really have those kinds of resources growing up. And so we have tried to be economical in the things that we have done. You know, Aaron Hills, you'd mentioned a little bit earlier, is one of those golf courses that, yes, it held a U.S. Open, but it was built for maybe a third or a fourth of what um, other golf courses have spent in the construction and spend in the maintenance of it as well. So we try to be as, as economical as we can. I think golf needs to stay affordable and accessible. Um, as well as to keep the enjoyment factor as high as we possibly can. Hey, assuming equipment remains the same and it's just the ball's going farther, farther, the clubs are getting more and more technologically advanced, what can a golf course architect do to protect today's courses or design future courses without approaching 8,000 yards? Well, <clears throat> it is a challenge. There's no question about that. And really the only way we can do it is working with angles. We're going back to the old style of golf architecture and the fact that you you read about lots of golf courses that want to go back to a a Willie Park plan or a Donald Ross plan or Alistair McKenzie, you know, restoration. And those guys had very good uh, sense of angles and strategy. And so although we can't make the golf courses – much longer we can tend to make them a little bit wider and then we can rethink uh, bunkering or rethink hazards and um, so we may use the same amount of ground the golf course may be in fact a little bit shorter but it might be have more shot values in it than than people thought so we're seeing bunkers move from rough line more into fairways and fairway lines we see greens that are a little different shape now with more isolated target areas, and that's really what we have to do to challenge the good player but still allow the average and and the seniors. And, you know, my mom is 96 years old, plays golf four or five times a week, and so when we're out designing, I'm thinking, how would my mom play this golf course? And then again, uh, Chris being, um, you know, much younger than I am and stronger and hits the ball that – 280 to 300 yards how is he going to play the golf hole so we really need to come up with that diversity and um and it has to do with angles as much as anything in your opinion in your opinion uh dr herdson have any design trends hurt the game um i probably think that over bunkering has hurt you know the most expensive part of the golf course on a square foot basis or on a unit basis are bunkers, sand bunkers. We spend more money on bunkers than we do on greens. 
um, and that's the cost to build them and the cost to maintain them. It's not uncommon for golf course superintendents to spend 20, 25, maybe even 28% of their budget on bunkers. And, and again, I, I go back to the fact that it kind of became a overused tool um, and that a well-placed smaller bunker like the old guys used to do, uh, you know, again, when I mentioned uh, back with Colton Morris and Robertson and all those guys, um, they would use less sand and would use it more precisely. And so I think that the, the overuse of sand is a problem. We're back now looking at our own golf courses that we did 20 or 30 years ago, and we're taking 40 or 50 percent of the of the sand area out, leaving maybe part of the bunker because that's the most functioning part, but getting rid of all that stuff that just costs a lot of money and adds to the playing time and doesn't really add to the enjoyment of the game. You know, that, that makes me think about the, um, the open championship and a lot of those little pot bunkers and they're obviously not very big, but they're, they're treacherous. Once your ball goes yeah. in there and you see these guys, uh, and there's not bigger than a, uh, I don't know, like a dinner table, I suppose, in, as opposed to these massive bunkers that we're seeing here in the States. Yeah, that's exactly the trend. And matter of fact, there's a project that's not far from you in uh, Westfield, Ohio, where we've, uh, it's a 36-hole course, and we remodeled um, all 36 holes. And 18 of it is sort of that North American wide, wider use of sand. And then the other 18 holes is the more European model where we use less sand, but it's more price, you know, more precisely placed. Well, the weather's taking a turn for the worse up here, uh, but I will definitely have to look more into getting out there and playing that golf course. Well, it'll be in the spring. Um, we've just finished it. Any other trend that we've gone to is we've gone away from the bent grass on that particular golf course. We've, we see these new improvements in bluegrasses, and uh, they're called low-mow bluegrasses, which or basically means that you you don't have to mow them as much because of the way they grow. And so we've used that throughout the golf course. Are those grasses harder to maintain? I mean, they're, they're kind of a growth regulator that's been bred into them, or what, what is the case may with that? Um, yes, yeah, so actually those grasses grow more sideways than up. And so they're really easier to maintain and they're easier to play off. It's almost like playing off of a zoysia. Uh, everybody enjoys playing a Zoysia golf course because the ball sits up and you can get a lot of club face on it. And with these bluegrasses, that's uh, we find the same thing happens there. Yeah, I, I got to play off of Zoysia in uh, Alabama at Farm Links and absolutely loved it. Yes, Farm Links is a wonderful place. That um, That's a wonderful family and it's a wonderful location. And they really set out to entertain people. And from the very front gate, you know, that nice long driveway all the way back. And then when you get out in the mountains, it's so quiet and so rural uh, and beautiful. And, and it just, it fit. And the zoysia grass was put there because it's much more environmentally uh, friendly. As you know, the family that developed it owned a fertilizer company. And they wanted to make that an environmental demonstration golf course to help teach other superintendents how to maintain the golf course with fewer inputs and they still do some of that but uh thank goodness they let people um that just want to come down and enjoy you know the sort of mid uh, alabama countryside uh play and stay there but 
uh, the zoysia grass was there because it was a lower maintenance. Yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree. The uh, Purcell family, David Purcell, a wonderful gentleman, and uh, I mean the hospitality you get when you're on property is, is second to none. It's fantastic. Yep, that it is southern hospitality at its best. Hey, I'm going to uh, I'm going to pose a tough question for you, and okay, you you may not want to answer it, but I'm going to ask you. I might, I might needle you too. Of all the holes you've designed, which has been a lot, do you have a favorite? Um, wow, that's a really, really good question. And, uh, we have designed quite a few, you know, one of my favorite golf holes doesn't exist anymore at Aaron Hills, uh, Ron Witten and Dana Fry, who were my co-designers, we designed a golf hole that was modeled after the Dell hole at LaHinch. And basically this was a par three that was blind and you played the tee over a white rock that was the marker rock and you played down into a valley and it was the entire valley was golf green. And so all you had to do was get the ball over the white rock, and you were going to be on the green and somewhere near the flag. And, um, and, but North American golfers couldn't handle the idea of, blind, of a blind par three, uh, even though LaHinch is one of the most favorite or, or one of the most famous golf holes um, in all of the world. But uh, anyway, we end up getting rid of that hole. But of the of the holes that currently exist, uh, we designed a golf course up in Canada uh, called Devil's Paintbrush after a, a wildflower that grows there named that. And um, this was a uh, a par four hole that uh, had another blind green, uh, but it was patterned after a golf hole at uh, Presswick um, that um, and uh, called the Alps and it's that still remains one of my and when people play it everybody goes you know that was really really a fun golf hole thank you for uh for opening up and sharing that with us uh some some guys are like oh no that's like choosing a, a favorite child i just can't do it so i'm glad that you were able to <laughs> share a couple with us yeah and i just i just watched the gentleman from uh no laying up they do a uh a youtube uh show called tourist sauce they were just in in ireland and they played la hinch and the dell and that hole looked amazing to me i wish i could have played it when it was at aaron hills yeah oh it was fun hole i have a lot of people that come up and say you know i i played aaron hills again i played it when it opened i played it just recently and they said they took the dell hole out that was one of my favorite holes and uh it was favored for ron witten and dana and i as well but again it uh the owner just couldn't handle people coming in and saying no one ever played a blind par three. So, unfortunately, yeah, it's gone. If you're hearing uh, a lot of you know pissing and moaning day after day, I suppose it's <laughs> it's you had enough. <laughs> That's exactly right. That's exactly <laughs> right. Hey, here's a hypothetical for you. Uh, if I give you a dream foursome, living or dead, uh, golfer or not golfer, somebody once said Jesus Christ was in his foursome. Uh, can you name your dream foursome? Well, I'll tell you one guy I would for sure have in there, and that would be Pete Dye. And because uh, I love every second I've ever spent with that man. Um, probably in that same uh, line, I would like to have H.S. Colt, who uh, Harry Colt was famous English designer, who really is the father, I think, of golf course architecture. And, um, uh, you know, I um, I think I'd love to have my mom in plan there uh, with oh, it. So it would be my mom and... And H.S. Colt and Pete Dye. 
That's fantastic. And uh, speaking of Pete Dye and uh, pot bunkers, I've got his bury me in a pot bunker in a special place at my house. Yeah. Well, he's a he's uh, he's a special man in my heart, uh, and uh, I don't think anybody has ever been as innovative uh, and as creative as Pete. And um, I love his sense of humor too. Hey, is there a uh, is there a bucket list location something that you haven't designed on or or in a, a, whether it's a country or a uh, a type of uh, a region that you would like to design yeah. on? Um, yes, actually, there are several. I guess that um, that come to mind. Uh, we have never done anything in Ireland or Scotland, and I'd love to have had an opportunity to. Um, even if it's just a remodel project and Ireland or Scotland would be to me sort of a fulfillment of a bucket list. Uh, but also I look at the things that Mike Kaiser is doing now and he's finding all these wonderful sites and he's using the same designers over and over. And there's nothing wrong with that. Those guys are, uh, as good as there are in their trade, but I'd certainly like to be able to put something out there beside them and have people say, you know, that herds and golf course is just as good as A, B, C, or D. We'll have to make that happen. Maybe we can uh, put out a tweet. Oh, sounds good to me. I would certainly <laughs> be all in favor of it. <laughs> all right. Hey, uh, I'm on it. Um, hey, I'll, I'll get you out on this one. What's the uh, future of golf course design? And you may have already touched upon it, but what's the future of golf course design? Well, uh, we need to really change the perception of the game for more people to come and play it. You know, certainly we talked way back when in the 70s, the 80s, I guess, and early 90s about the Tiger effect and so many people came to the game. But there's so many more diversions now that people have. And I think that, the, unfortunately, the future is is going to take something to, to – get a new growth spurt. Uh, and I think it's going to have to be the healthful benefits of it. The fact that you're out in the sunshine, that you're getting some exercise, the social value of it, uh, all of those things, I think, are, Rob, are going to be the things that really spur that growth. But right now, it's pretty much a remodeling market. And we see more golf courses closing than opening. Uh, we see fewer people coming into the game than are leaving the game. And, um, even though it's quite popular on TV, it just we're not bringing people to the game. And so, it, you know, we hear about the six-hole and the 12-hole golf courses. That's been around forever and ever. But, you know, we need to find whatever that, that magic formula is. And Lord knows you have a lot of smart readers of your magazine and listeners of this podcast that have tried a lot of things. But uh, we just haven't quite found that right balance yet. And I think that as long as we can think affordable, accessible, and enjoyable, then then we'll find it at some point. Hey, uh, from your mouth to God's ears, <laughs> we'll, we'll get there. I hope so. You know, and I think we will. Golf is just too of an addictive game, too much of an addictive game for to ever really be lost. And all we need to do is to get – put a club in somebody's hand. That's why I was hoping we get more converts from Top Golf. Uh, you know, we have to overcome the, you know, the music and the food and the drink and um, you know, all of the camaraderie that Top Golf has to offer. But if for somehow we could get that out to the golf course, I think it it could work. And maybe it's just changing the, you know, uh, protocols at clubs and 
places and allow the music and allow, you know, a little more common casual dress and, um, you know, and allow fivesomes or sixsomes. It's going to be something, but uh, I just think game the game is way too way too powerful to ever go away. We just need to find that right balance to appeal to the generations that are now we need to have come populated. Well, I think we're slowly matriculating in that direction, so I think we're, we're, we're trending in the right direction at least. I think we are too. Hey, Mike, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, if you'd like to learn more about Dr. Herdson and Christopher and the work they're doing, log on to herdsengolf.com and dig a little bit deeper. Thank you again so much, sir. Thanks, Rob. Thank you. And I, and again, thank you for the great work you're doing at the, at the magazine on the podcast. I always look forward to, uh, to having those and to gain new knowledge.